Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Growing Up Cast, your weekly feel-good podcast, where this week we read three more chapters of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. I'll talk about one of my all-time favorite shows from a long, long ago, give you an update on moving procedures, and we talk about a hope and a dream that I had. I mean for that to sound so cryptic, but I, you know, I took a shot in the dark, and we'll talk about how that went um, in here in a little while. I talk about Once Upon a Time, which is a, it's a show. And we'll get into that here in a little bit. And uh, do a little bit of an update on like how like moving in and living on my own and all that stuff is going on. And we got three other chapters between those things on the sea. But if you like the Going Up Cast and want to support the Going Up Cast, there's one really good way in which you can do that. You go to patreon.com forward slash goingupcast where you can become a $5 patron. Get access to the monthly live streams and the Pokemon Nuzlocke run and all sorts of great stuff um, over there on the, on the Patreon side of things. Uh, but no, you never have to do that. It's just... Uh, a, a nice gesture uh, if, if you're so inclined. Hope you're all doing well. Um, I recently purchased a, a new mask. Um, previously, I had one of those with like the valve on it, which apparently is not uh, super safe for everybody. So I got a, a new mask without the valve. So now I am on board with keeping the world healthy and moving. Of course, I now work from home, so don't really need the mask except when I go to recycle or check my mail and stuff. So that's fun. Anyway, that's enough of me just yammering at you guys. Let's listen to another hour and ten minutes plus of me yammering at you guys. Alright, looks like it's time for another fun-ass, fun-ass, fun-ass chapter. Super fun. So much fun. You know why it's so much fun? Because this is chapter 2023 of, uh... Uh, this book, where's my fucking copy? Uh, chapter 23. Do, 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 do. It's called Agrisomnia. Chapter 23, Agrisomnia. What's that about? I don't. I don't quite frankly know. Hold on, I need to move that over there. There we go. Now I can actually see the book and read it. Chapter 23, Agrisomnia. Have I said that enough times for you guys to. You guys didn't know what's up? Anyway. The following day, January 10th, the Nautilus resumed its travels in midwater, but at a remarkable speed that I estimated to be at least 35 miles per hour. The propeller was going so fast I could neither follow nor count its revolutions. I thought about how this marvelous electric force not only gave motion, heat, and light to the Nautilus, but even protected it against outside attack, transforming it into a sacred arc no profane hand could touch without being blasted. My wonderment was boundless and went from the submersible itself to the engineer who had created it. We were traveling due west, and on January 11th, we doubled Cape Vessel, located longitude 135 degrees and latitude 10 degrees north, the western tip of the Gulf of Carpentaria. Reefs were still numerous, but more widely scattered, and were fixed on the chart with the greatest accuracy. Nautilus easily avoided the money breakers to port and the Victoria Reefs to starboard, positioned at longitude 130 degrees on the 10th parallel, which we went along rigorously. So, a couple of things that I've arrived at the conclusion of um, having read uh, this book for quite some time. Number one, I hate lists. And, and, and writing now, Jules Verne has absolutely ruined that for me. To the point where if I see a list of things like in a resume or on a, like a job application, just fucking just lists of shit, to me is now bad writing. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna come right out and say it. If, if you're if you're just got like a fucking list 
And it isn't like a practical list. Like, if you have a shopping list, totally fine. If you have a grocery list, I get it. You know? You got a, you got a list of contacts in your phone. Lists have a purpose. Lists do not belong in fucking writing. Like literature. Lists do not belong. Lists are lazy. I don't like it. I don't... It doesn't... It doesn't help. It, they, all of his dumbass lists about animals, they don't help. They don't help, like me visualize it because I'm I don't know what the fuck all these things are based on their scientific name it doesn't help me visualize the image more it just says there's a shit ton of animals I've never fucking heard of just like out in front of them and I suppose I you know it could be scientifically accurate to the location I don't really know but I don't read books so I can go fucking google it later with my fucking Madagascar encyclopedia of random coral bullshit nobody cares about I'm not, that's not what I do, you know? I can appreciate that it, like, awakens curiosity in its readers so they go figure this shit out for themselves and spawns a bunch more marine biologists. I get that for sure. I was almost one of them. But it's not good writing. It's lazy. The constant descriptions of the location of the Nautilus on the planet is, like, much the same. I don't feel like I need to know the exact fucking... Latitude and longitude and no position of the Nautilus in order to go, oh, hey, got you. I'm following along. And I can only imagine that this is very much the same of, like, uh, around the world in 80 days. You know, on day 67, we were in, you know, Calcutta at latitude, longitude, blah, 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 blah. It's, it's not, it's not compelling writing. I'm going to just be completely honest with you. I, I do not think it is it is solid. In my opinion, if you have a list of ideas or nouns or whatever that you want to display to your listeners, to your readers, you can turn that list of bullshit into a fucking complete total sentence without making it a list. It is possible. It's hard, but that's the point. That's the whole fucking point is that you make a compelling ass story for your fucking readers to read. And sometimes that takes complex fucking sentences and different ways of expressing ideas besides just fucking word vomiting a list of bullshit that nobody knows. There was a rule in journalism that you always wrote for like the least common denominator. I'm not saying that's what I want to have happen here because that's exactly what he's doing with these lists. Is it's the laziest way of displaying this information to him. He is, he is telling me these things and not showing me these things. A list of scientific names about various types of fucking fish does not help me as the reader visualize what I'm looking at. I just insert it with a bunch of other fucking fish. I don't know if they're the same fish or not. So, that's, that's kind of where I'm at. There's a lot of things referenced in here that just don't play well with, with the reader. Which is why, you know... I, I, I give this book such a hard time because it's bad <laughs> it's not it's not the, the best of, of of written stuff now I will I will say I'm gonna throw this out here the book was not written in English the book was written in French so could be some minor translation errors I'm just I'm just throwing that out there perhaps in the original French it's more nuanced I'm not I'm not I'm not sure it could be, could very well be, but I've I've lost track in a pretty big way. So I'm just gonna I'm just gonna get back to it, 
And uh, every time, you know, I, I get irritated with a list or, or a location or something like that, you guys can just, you know, imagine just a, ch a fucking board. Just tally mark it up. Anyway. On January 13th, arriving in the Timor Sea, Captain Nemo raised the island of that name at longitude 122 degrees. This island, whose surface area measures 1,625 square leagues, is governed by Rajas. These aristocrats deem themselves the son of crocodiles. In other words, descendants with the most exalted origins to which a human being can lay claim. Accordingly, their scaly ancestors infest the island's rivers and are the subject of special veneration. They are sheltered, nurtured, flat, flattered, pampered, and offered a ritual diet of nubile maidens. And woe to the foreigner who lifts a finger against these sacred saurians. Okay. But the Nautilus wanted nothing to do with these nasty animals. Timor Island was visible for barely an instant at noon while the chief officer determined his position. I caught only a glimpse of the little Rhodey Island, part of the same group, whose women have a well-established reputation for beauty in the Malaysian marketplace. Jesus. After our position, the Nautilus's latitude bearing was modulated to the southwest. Our prow pointed to the Indian Ocean. Where would Captain Nemo's fancies take us? Would he head up to the shores of Asia? Would he pull near the beaches to Europe? Unlikely choices for a man who had avoided populated areas. So would he go down south? Would he double the Cape of Good Hope, then Cape Horn, and push on to the Antarctic Pole? Finally, would he return to the seas of the Pacific, where his Nautilus could navigate freely and easily? Time would tell. After cruising along the Cartier, Hibernia, Sergiopatum, and Scott Reefs, the solid elements' last exertions against the liquid element, we were beyond all sight of shore by January 14th. Nautilus slowed down on an odd manner and very unpredictable on its ways. In some time, it sometimes swam in the midst of water, sometimes drifted on their surface. During this phase of our voyage, Captain Nemo conducted interesting experiments on the different temperatures in various strata of the sea. Under ordinary conditions, such readings are obtained using some pretty complicated instruments whose findings are dubious to say the least, whether they're thermometric. What? Hold on. Thermometric. Thermometric, sorry. I'm like, it's thermometer, but it's got other letters in there as well. So I'm like, what the fuck's going on? Thermometric sounding lines whose glass often shatters under the water's pressures or those devices based on the varying resistance of metals and to electric currents. The results so obtained can be adequately double-checked. By contrast, Captain Nemo would seek the sea's temperature by going himself into its depths, where he placed his thermometer in contact with the various layers of liquid. He fought the sought for degree immediately. He, he found the sought for degree immediately and with certainty. And so, by loading up its ballast tanks or by sinking obliquely with its slanting fins, Nautilus successfully reached depths of 3,000, 4,000, 5,000, 7,000, 9,000, and 10,000 meters. And ultimately, uh, and the ultimate conclusion from these experiments was that in all latitudes, the sea had a permanent temperature of 4.5 degrees centigrade at a depth of 1,000 meters. Yes. I watched these experiments with the most intense fascination. Captain Nemo brought a real passion, um, brought a real passion for them. I often wondered why he took these observations. Were they for the benefit of his fellow men? It was unlikely because sooner or later his work would perish with him in some unknown sea, unless he intended the results of his experiments for me. But that meant this strange voyage of mine would come to an end, and no such end was in sight. Indeed. Be that as it may, Captain Nemo also introduced me to different data that he had obtained on the relative densities of the water in our globe's chief surf seas. Surfaces. Seas. From this news, I derived um, some personal enlightenment having nothing to do with science. Happened on the morning of January 15th. The captain, with whom I was strolling on the platform, asked me if I knew how salt water differs in density from sea to sea. I said no, adding that there is a lack of rigorous scientific observation on the subject. 
I have taken such observations, he told me, and I can vouch for their reliability. Fine, I replied. The Nautilus lives in a separate world, and the secrets of scientists don't make their way ashore. You're right, Professor, he said, and after a few moments, silence. This is a separate world. It's as alien to the Earth as the planets accompanying the globe around the sun, and we'll never be familiar with the work of scientists on Saturn or Jupiter. But since fate has linked our two lives, I can reveal the results of my observations to you. I'm all attention, Captain. You are aware, Professor, that salt water is denser than fresh water, but this density is not uniform. In essence, if I represent the density of fresh water by one point, zero, 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 then I find that at 1.028 for the waters of the Atlantic, 1.026 for the waters of the Pacific, 1.030 for the waters of the Mediterranean. Ah, I thought, so he ventures into the Mediterranean. 1.018 for the waters of the Ionian Sea. And 1.029 for the waters of the Adriatic. What the fuck is the Ionian Sea? I don't know those waters. Ionian Sea. The Ionian Sea is the... Oh, okay. It is um, uh, between Italy and Greece, um, just south of the Adriatic and just north of the Mediterranean. Huh, the Ionian Sea. That is not, I know the Aegean, I know the Adriatic, I know the Mediterranean, but there's also another one between Italy and um, Sardinia, I don't know, called the Tyrrhenian Sea. Interesting. Interesting. Would you look at that? It's, it's interesting. It's so funny. Just assumed all those waters were called the Mediterranean, but hey, that's fine. It's whatever. What do I know? <laughs> anyway. Um, yeah. Assuredly, the Nautilus didn't avoid the heavily traveled seas of Europe. And from this insight, I concluded that the ship would take us back, perhaps very soon, to more civilized shores. I expected Nedland to greet this news with unfeigned satisfaction. For several days, our work hours were spent in all sorts of experiments on the degree of the salinity in waters of different depths or on their electric properties, coloration, and transparency. And in every instance, Captain Nemo displayed an ingenuity equaled only by his graciousness towards me. Then I saw no more of him for some days and again lived on board in seclusion. What about Nedland and your, and your fucking manservant? Dazzler, whatever his name was. On January 16th, the Nautilus seemed to have fallen asleep just a few meters beneath the surface of the water. Its electric equipment had been turned off, and the motionless propeller let it ride with the waves. I assumed that the crew were busy with interior repairs required by the engine's strenuous mechanical action. My companions and I then witnessed an unusual sight. The panels in the lounge were open, and since the Nautilus's beacons were off, a hazy darkness reigned in the midst of the waters. Covered with heavy clouds, the storm sky gave only the faintest lights of the ocean's upper stratum. Observing the state of the sea under these conditions, and even the largest fish were nothing more than ill-defined shadows when the Nautilus suddenly transferred into broad daylight. First, I thought the beacon had gone back on and was casting its electric light into the liquid mask. I was mistaken, and after hasty ex examination, I discovered my error. The Nautilus had drifted into the midst of a phosphorescent strata, which, in this darkness, came off as positively dazzling. This effect was caused by myriads of tiny luminous animals whose brightness increased when they glided over the metal hull of our submersible. Now, these animals do exist. They are bioluminescent, and they are absolutely amazing. And they are everywhere. They are incredibly... You cannot see them in the day. It's got to be right, proper, dark. But it's, it's incredible. It's like the northern lights in the water. It's fucking 
It's fucking gorgeous. So I've witnessed this myself when I went night scuba diving. Um, and it's... It's something else. I, you gotta see it. You gotta find them. They're fucking so cool. Alright, so yeah. In the midst of these luminous sheets of water, I then glimpsed flashes of light, like those seen inside of a blazing furnace from streams of molten lead or from masses of metal brought into white heat. Flashes so intense that certain areas of light became shadows by comparison. In a fiery setting from which every shadow could be... could seemingly should seemingly have been banished. No, this was no longer the calm emission of our usual lighting. This light throbbed with unprecedented vigor and activity. You sensed that it was alive. In essence, it was a cluster of countless open sea infusoria of Noctiluca, an eighth of an inch wide, actual globules of transparent jellies equipped with thread-like tentacles up to 25,000 of which had been counted in 30 cubic centimeters of water. And the power of their light was increased by the glimmers unique of medusas, starfish, common jellyfish, angel wing clams, and other phosphorescent zoophytes who were saturated with grease from organic matter decomposed by the sea and perhaps with mucus secreted by fish. For several hours, the Nautilus drifted in this brilliant tide, and our wonderment grew when we saw huge marine animals cavorting in it like the fire-dwelling salamanders of myth. In the midst of these flames that didn't burn, I could see swift, elegant porpoises, tireless pranksters of the sea, and sailfish three meters long, those shrewd heralds of hurricanes whose fearsome broadswords sometimes bane against the lounge windows. Then smaller fish appeared, mis uh, miscellaneous triggerfish, leather jacks, unicornfish, and hundreds of others that left stripes on this luminous atmosphere in their course. The statement, and hundreds of others that left stripes on this luminous atmosphere in their course, good. You don't have to list all hundred of them. You can just tell me that there's a fuck ton of fish. It's a lot easier for me to picture I don't get bogged down in all your useless science. Some magic lay behind this dazzling sight. Perhaps some atmospheric condition had intensified this phenomenon. Perhaps a storm had been unleashed on the surface of the waves. Only a few meters down, the Nautilus felt no tempest's fury, and the ship rocked peacefully in the midst of these calm waters. And so it went, some new wonder constantly delighting us. Council observed and, I classi and classified as zoophytes, articulates, mollusks, and fish. The day passed quickly, and I no longer kept track of them. Um, Ned, as usual, kept looking for changes of pace uh, from our standard fare. Like actual snails, we were at home in our shell, and I can vouch that it was easy to turn into a full-fledged snail. So this way of living being to began to sim uh, seem simple and natural to us, and we no longer envisioned a different lifestyle on the surface of the planet Earth, when something happened to remind us of our strange circumstances. On January 18th... Ah, they're getting complacent. They're sta they've stayed in the Lotus Hotel for too long. On January 18th, the Nautilus lay longitude 105 degrees and latitude 50 degrees south, the weather was threatening, the seas rough and billowy, the winds was blowing a strong gust from the east. The barometer, which had been falling for some days now, oh, that's my favorite bit. Muppet Family Christmas uh, has this this joke from the news the newscaster, and his jokes were always like based on puns, and he's like, storm blowing in from the northeast, we have reports that barometers are falling sharply, and then he's like, oh no, as he's rained on by a bunch of barometers, it's so fucking, oh, it's so good. Barometers are falling sharply. Anyway. Forecast and approaching struggle of the elements. I had climbed onto the platform just as the chief officer was taking his readings of our angles. Out of habit, I waited for him to pronounce his daily phrase. But that day, it was replaced by a different phrase, just as incomprehensible. Almost once, I saw Captain Nemo appear, lift his spyglass, and inspect the horizon. For some minutes, the captain stood motionless, rooted to the spot contained within his field of lens. Then he lowered his spyglass and exchanged about ten words with his chief officer. The latter seemed to be in a grip of an excitement as he tried in vain to control. More in command of himself, Captain Nemo remained cool. Furthermore, he seemed to be raising certain objections that his chief officer kept answering with flat assurances. At least that's what I gathered from their differences in tone and gesture. 
As for me, I stared industriously in the direction under observation, but without spotting a thing. Sky and water merged in a perfect clear horizon. Meanwhile, Captain Nemo strolled from one end of the platform to the other, not glancing at me, perhaps not even seeing me. His step was firm, but less regular than usual. Sometimes he would stop, cross his arm over chest, and observe the sea. What could he be looking for over that immense expanse? By then, the Nautilus lay hundreds of miles from the nearest coast. Chief Officer kept lifting his spyglass and stubbornly examining the horizon. Walking up and down, stamping his foot in his nervous agitation, a sharp contrast to his spirit. But this mystery would inevitably be cleared up for me, and soon, because Captain Nemo gave orders to increase speed, and once the engine stepped up its drive power, setting the propeller in swifter rotation. Just then, the chief officer drew the captain's attention anew. The latter interrupted his strolling, aimed his spyglass at the point indicated. He observed it a good while. As for me, deeply puzzled, I went below to the lounge and brought back an excellent, excellent long-range telescope I habitually used. Leaning my elbows on the beacon housing, which uh, jutted from the stern of the platform, I got set to scour that whole stretch of Skansky. No sooner had I peered into the eyepiece than the instruments snatched from my hands. I spun around. Captain Nemo was standing before me, and I almost didn't recognize him. His facial features were transfigured. Gleaming with dark fire, his eyes had shrunk beneath his frowning brow. His teeth were half bared. His rigid body clenched fists and head drawn between his shoulders, all attested to a fierce hate breathing from every pore. He didn't move. Uh, my spyglass fell from his hands and rolled to his feet. Had I accidentally caused these symptoms of anger? Did this incomprehensible individual think I had detected some forbidden, uh, some secret forbidden to guests on the Nautilus? No. I wasn't the subject of his hate because he wasn't even looking at me. His eyes stayed stubbornly focused on that inscrutable point on the horizon. Finally, Captain Nemo regained his self-control. His facial appearance, so profoundly changed, now resumed its usual calm. He addressed a few words to his chief officer in their strange language, and they turned to me. Professor Arnox, uh, he told me in a tone of some urgency. I'd ask that you now honor one of your binding agreements between us. Which one, Captain? You and your companions must be placed in confinement until I see fit to free you. You are in command, I answered, gaping at him. But may I address a question to you? You may not, sir. After that, I stopped objecting and started obeying since resistance was useless. Well, it's... yeah, whatever. I went below to the cabin occupied by Ned Land and Council, and I informed them of the captain's decision. I let the, I'll let the reader decide how this news was received by the Canadian. In any case, there was no time for explanations. Along with the lists, I'll let the reader decide how this news was received by Canadians. How about you fucking tell me how the news was received by Nedland? It's almost like this is a book, and you're telling me a story. I didn't know this was a fucking group effort, Jules. Yeah, that's right. Now, now I'm shit-talking you. That's what happens. You know what? Now you're on that level. It's... It doesn't take long, Jules. It doesn't take, doesn't take long. It doesn't take much. But you finally done enough dumb things for me to be like, no. Enough is enough. I don't care if this is a classic. Yeah, it's not good writing. Tell me how he received it. Anyway. In any case, there was no time for explanations. Four crewmen were waiting at the door, and they led us to the cell where we had spent our first night aboard the Nautilus. Uh, Nedland tried to lodge a complaint, but the only answer he got was a door shut in his face. Will Master tell me what this means? Cancel asked me. But I told my companions what had happened. They were as astonished as I was, but no wiser. Then I sank into deep speculation, and Captain Nemo's strange facial seizure kept me haunting me. I was incapable of connecting two ideas in logical order, and I had strayed into the most absurd hypothesis. Uh, hypotheses. When I was snapped out of my mental struggles by these words from Nedland. Well, look here. Lunch is served. Indeed, the table has been laid. Captain Nemo, apparently Captain Nemo had given his this order at the same time he commanded the Nautilus to pick up speed. Will Master allow me to make him a recommendation? Council asked me. Yes, my boy. I replied. Well, Master needs to eat his lunch. It's prudent because we have no idea what the future holds. You're right, Council. 
Unfortunately, Nan said, they've only given us the standard menu. Nan, my fr- uh, Nan, my friend, Hansel answered. What would you say if they had given us no lunch at all? This dose of sanity was cut the harpooner's complaints off. Com cut the harpooner's complaints clean off. There we go. We sat down at the table. Our meal uh, proceeded pretty much in silence. I ate very little. Council, everlastingly prudent, force-fed himself. And despite the menu, Nedlin didn't waste a bite. Then, lunch over, each of us propped himself in a corner. Just then, the luminous globe lighting our cell went out, leaving us in profound darkness. Nedlin soon dozed off, and to my astonishment, Council also fell into a heavy slumber. I was wondering what could have caused this urgent need for sleep when I felt a dense torpor saturate my brain. I tried to keep my eyes open, but they closed in spite of me. I was in the grip of anguished hallucinations. Obviously, some sleep-inducing substance had been laced in the food we were just eating. So, imprisonment wasn't enough to conceal Captain Nemo's plans from us. Sleep was needed as well. I heard the hatches close, the sea's undulations, which had been creating a gentle rocking motion, now ceased. Had the Nautilus left the surface of the ocean? Was it re-entering the motionless strata deep in the sea? I tried to fight off this drowsiness, but it was impossible. <clears throat> my breathing grew weaker. I felt mortal chill freeze my dull, nearly paralyzed limbs. Like little domes of lead, my lids fell over my eyes. I couldn't raise them. A morbid sleep full of hallucinations seized my whole being. Then the visions disappeared and left me in utter oblivion. Apparently, there was a word earlier that was Latin for troubled dreams. I did not see an asterisk anywhere. And, yeah, I'm scrolling back looking for it. What What's Latin for troubled dreams? I didn't even see it. Oh, well, whatever. Uh, apparently, uh, there's a point in this book where, or just chapter where something was said, was Latin for troubled dreams. So, hey, isn't that, isn't that exciting? Hey, everybody, it's me. I uh, just wanted to give you guys a, a quick update with how the whole uh, living in a new place thing has been going. Uh, it's been going really well. Some of the things I noticed uh, initially moving in, I think I mentioned it last week where I was talking about how I was lacking those basic essentials like salt and pepper and spices and stuff like that. And uh, originally getting used to this place, like I didn't really like feel comfortable like cooking in my own kitchen yet. You know, it's all new and different. Um, getting used to things like the shower for example, uh, was pretty quick because that was so essential and getting used to the kitchen and knowing where all of my shit was, um, was tough in the beginning. Cause it was just like, I don't know where things are. I don't know what I want to make. I don't have food, you know, those things. But now, uh, almost two weeks into the new place. Um, I'm, I'm more accustomed to my, my cooking devices and stuff like that. I think the stovetop is pretty good. Uh, the oven did a wonderful job with, uh, with like chicken and brownies. So that's all excellent. Um, yeah, it wasn't one meal. It was just like things that I've baked since, um, since I moved in and I haven't had like brownies in a really long time. I didn't actually finish the tray. I had to, I had to get rid of them cause you know, uh, it's bad to just have an entire tray of brownies to yourself. Um, even if it is spread out over a couple of days, but I'm getting used to the kitchen, definitely used to the bathroom. Um, figuring out like what combination of things I need to do in order to sleep soundly and comfortably, uh, like ceiling fan and tower fan and window open, those sorts of things. Um, still playing around with all of those, uh, and getting used to the tap water is another one. I have a Brita filter, which certainly helps. Um, but I actually haven't tried 
drinking the water out of the sink in a while. Um, the reason I got the Brita filter originally was because the, the water tasted like new plumbing. It tasted like plastic. Um, because of all the fucking new pipes and shit that the water was traveling through. So I'm willing to bet that now there's been enough water movement through the sink that most of that flavor has probably vanished. Um, so I'll give that another shot here a little while. Um, but th doing things like, um, playing, playing PlayStation on my couch where it like reclines and it's like perfectly angled so I can still see the TV. Um, I don't need speakers for my television because the, the, like I'm so close to it that I can just use the, the speakers built into the machine, which is pretty, they're pretty good speakers to be honest. Like I'm not sure how loud it can get, but I keep it like a healthy, like 12 to 14, you know, like pretty low. Because uh, it does not need to be all that high in order to hear it, which is fantastic. Just uh, more money being saved there, uh, and I've I very much enjoyed that. Um, and another big change is that I almost exclusively work from home now, which is both a good thing and a bad thing. It's a good thing because, like, I'm saving money on gas and I don't have to travel. Um, I can work in my PJs, you know, those sorts of things. I can watch um, like Critical Role while I'm doing my data crunching, those sorts of things. And that's all fucking wonderful. Um, I, I spoke about it last time with like the, the isolation and the fear that, you know, you spend all of your time in your home. Um, so you lose that, that social aspect. Um, I don't think that's going to happen to me for a number of reasons. One, um, I still have like video meetings for work. Um, I talk to people like digitally fairly often. Um, you know, I still go shopping and I still like go out into the world. But uh, I think the the really big thing for me in order to keep my sanity is definitely gonna be the podcast and the audiobooks because I mentioned it last time it really does feel like I'm I'm talking to somebody else and getting my ideas and emotions out there. So those those things help keep me on the straight and narrow. Plus, I have a balcony I can go stand on and I can witness other people. So, that's all. That's all well and good. But I can see how easy it would be to just hide in my shell. It'd be it'd be way too easy. And that's what college was for me. Like, those last two years of college when I lived alone in an apartment, it was like, I went to class and I stayed home. Like, that was just kind of what I did. Um, and the excuse was I did the YouTube videos, which, I mean, fair excuse. But that's what, you know, kept me in that in that zone was um was youtube videos and if i didn't make youtube videos i probably would have gotten out a lot more because of sheer like necessity to interact with folks so but yeah uh moving in is basically done i hung my blackout curtains which are pretty wonderful um i got a, a set from costco and a set from uh fucking uh amazon and the amazon set is fine uh, i'm almost tempted to buy a second set of the costco ones just so they match um, and I might do that, especially because I can actually still see bits of sunlight through the Amazon ones, so they're not true blackout curtains, um, which isn't super great, uh, but I can get some of the Costco ones, and I can extend the bar out and um, hang those, and I might do that here in a, uh, next time I go to Costco. Um, yeah, what else is new? Got some throw pillows. I got a Swiffer, finally. That thing took a fucking while to find. I had to go to Bed Bath & Beyond online and get that thing shipped, uh, but now I have a Swiffer. Um, so I can Swiffer my, my wooden vinyl floor. Um, I've got like the dry pads and the wet pads. So I'm probably going to hit it with the, with a wet pad, just, you know, do the, do the floor and then, um, go back over it with a dry pad would be my strategy. I have no idea. How do you Swiffer? 
How do you Swiffer? Um, yeah. But that's uh, that's enough about what's going on with the whole moving situation. Um, I'd say I'm pretty dang saddled now. And I'm just waiting for the gym to open on, like, September 1st. So, got a couple of weeks before that kicks in. Um, and in the meantime, I'm just gonna try to restart working out with my, uh, my free weights. And, uh, doing my, my crunches and my push-ups and my squats. You know, all those fun things. That's my next thing in the podcast. Chapter, fuck. Ch- chapter, uh, 24. The Coal Realm. And I believe this is the, yeah, this is the last chapter of part one. So, that's exciting. I guess after this chapter, we'll be exactly halfway through this book. The next day, I woke up with my head unusually clear. Much to my surprise, I was in my stateroom. No doubt my companions had been put back in their cabins without noticing it any more than I had. Like me, they would have no idea what took place during the night, and to unravel this mystery, I could only I could count only on some future happenstance. I then considered leaving my stateroom. <sighs> Was I free or still a prisoner? Perfectly free. I opened my door and headed down the gangways and climbed to the central companionway. Hatches had been closed the day before were now open. I arrived on the platform. Nanlin and Council were waiting for me. I questioned them. They knew nothing. Lost in heavy sleet of which they had no memory, they were quite startled to be back in their own cabins. As for the Nautilus, it seemed as tranquil and mysterious as ever. It was cruising on the surface of the waves at moderate speed. Nothing seemed to have changed on board. Nanlin had observed the sea with a penetrating eye. It was deserted. Canadian sighted nothing new on the horizon, neither sail nor shore. A breeze was blowing noisily from west and disheveled by the wind. Long billows made the submersible roll very noticeably. After renewing its air, the Nautilus stayed an average depth of 15 meters, uh, enabling it to return quickly to the surface of the waves. And contrary to custom, I execute it executed such a maneuver several times during that day on January 19th. The chief officer would then climb onto the platform and his usual phrase would ring out through the ship's interior. As for Captain Nemo, he didn't appear. Of the other men on board, I only saw my emotionless steward who served me with his usual mute efficiency. Near two o'clock, I was busy organizing my notes in the lounge. When the captain opened the door and appeared, I bowed to him. He gave me an almost imperceptible bow in return without saying a word to me. I resumed my work, hoping he might give some explanation of the previous afternoon's events. He did nothing of the sort. I stared at him. His face looked exhausted. His reddened eyes hadn't been refreshed by sleep. His facial features expressed profound sadness, real chagrin. He walked up and down, sat and stood, picked up a book at random, discarded it immediately, and consulted his instruments without taking his customary notes. Seemed unable to rest for an e- easy for an instant. Finally, he came over to me and said, Are you a physician, Professor Arnox? This inquiry was so unexpected, I stared at him a good while without replying. Are you a physician? He repeated. Several of your scientific colleagues took their degrees in medicine, such as Grayole, Marquin Tandon, and others. That's right, he said. I am a doctor. I used to be called uh, on call in hospitals. I was in practice for several years before joining the museum. Excellent, sir! My reply, obviously, please, Captain Nemo. But now knowing what he's driving at, I waited for further questions, ready to reply as circumstances dictated. Professor Arnox, the captain said, would you consent to give your medical attention to one of my men? Someone is sick? Yes. I'm ready to go with you. Come. I admit that my heart was pounding. Lord knows why. I saw a definite connection between the sick crew and yesterday's happening, and the mystery of those events concerned me as least as much as the man's sickness. Captain Nemo led me to the Nautilus' stern, inviting me into a cabin located uh, next to the sailors' quarters. On the bed there lay a man of some 40 years old with strongly molded features, the very image of an Anglo-Saxon. 
I bent over him. Not only was he sick, he was wounded. Swathed in blood-soaked linen, his head was resting on a folded pillow. I undid the linen bandage which was wounded, which the wounded man gazed with great staring eyes, and let me proceed without making a single complaint. It was a horrible wound. The cranium had been smashed open by some blunt instrument, leaving the naked brain exposed. Ah! And cerebral matter had suffered deep abrasions. Blood clots had formed in the dissolving mass, taking on the color of wine dregs. Both the contusion and concussion of the brain had occurred. The sick man's breathing was labored, its muscle spasms quivering his face. Cerebral inflammation was complete and had brought on a paralysis of movement and sensation. I took the wounded man's pulse. It was intermittent. The body's extremities were already growing cold, and I saw that death was approaching without any possibility of my holding it in check. After dressing the poor man's wounds, I redid the linen bandage around his head and turned to Captain Nemo. How did he get this wound? I asked him. That's not important, Captain replied evasively. The Nautilus suffered a collision that cracked one of the engine levers, and it struck this man. My chief officer was standing beside him. This man leapt forward to intercept the blow. A brother lays down his life for his brother, a friend for his friend. What could be simpler? That's the law for everyone on board the Nautilus. But what is your diagnosis of his condition? I hesitated to speak my mind. You may talk freely, the captain told me. This man doesn't understand French. I took a last look at the wounded man, then I replied, This man will be dead in two hours. Nothing can save him? Nothing. Captain Nemo clenched his fist and tears slid from his eyes, which I had thought incapable um, of weaving. For a few moments, I observed the dying man, whose life was ebbing little by little. He grew even more pale under the electric light that bathed his deathbed. Um, I looked at his intelligent head, furrowed with premature wrinkles that misfortune, perhaps misery, had etched long before. So hoping to detect the secrets of his life and the last words that might escape his lips. You may go, Professor Alnox, Captain Nemo told me. I left the captain in the dying man's cabin and re uh, repaired to my stateroom, very moved by the scene. All day long, I was a quiver with gruesome forebodings. That night, I slept poorly, and between my fitful dreams, I thought I heard distant moaning like a funeral dirge. Was it a prayer for the dead? Murmured in that language I couldn't understand. Next morning, I climbed on deck. Captain Nemo was already there. As soon as he saw me, he came over. Professor, he said to me, would it be convenient to, for you to make an underwater excursion today? With my companions, I asked. If they are agreeable, we are yours to command, Captain. Then kindly put on your diving suits. As for the dead or dying man, he can't come into the picture. I rejoined Ned Lind and Council. I informed them of Captain Nemo's proposition. Council was eager to accept, and this time the Canadian proved perfectly amenable to going with us, because there's nothing else to do on this fucking boat. It was 8 o'clock in the morning. By 8.30, we were suited up for this new stroll, and equipped with our two devices for lightning and breathing. The double door opened, and accompanied by Captain Nemo, with a dozen crewmen following, we set foot on firm seafloor where the Nautilus was resting 10 meters down. A gentle slope gravitated to an uneven bottom whose depth was about 15 fathoms. This bottom was completely different from the one I had visited during my first excursion under the waters of the Pacific Ocean. Here I saw no fine-grained sand, no underwater prairies, no not one open sea forest. I immediately recognized the wondrous region in which Captain Nemo did the honors that day. It was the Coral Realm. In the Zoophyte Branch class, whatever the fuck, one finds the order who gives a shit, which contains three groups, sea fans, Isidian polyps, and coral polyps. It is in this last that precious coral belongs, an unusual substance that at different times has been classified in mineral, vegetable, and animal kingdom. Medicine to the ancients, jewelry to the moderns, it wasn't decisively placed in the animal kingdom until 1694 by Paysonnel of Marseilles. I think it's Marseille, but fucking, well, who cares? A coral is a unit of tiny animals assembled over a popillary that's brittle and stony in nature. These polyps have a unique generating mechanism that reproduces them via budding process, and they have an individual existence while also participating in a communal life. Hence, the embodiment, uh, they embody a sort of natural socialism. I was familiar with the latest research on this bizarre suvite, which turns to stone 
when taking on tree form, and some naturalists have very aptly observed, and nothing could have been more fascinating to me than to visit one of these petrified forests that nature has planted on the bottom of the sea. We turned on our room corf devices. Uh, how about your fucking lanterns? Let's call them that. Let's call them that. We turned on our lights and went along a coral shore in the process of forming, which, given time, will someday close off this whole part of the Indian Ocean. Our path was bordered by hopelessly tangled bushes formed from snarls of shrubs and covered with little starships and white streaks of flowers. Only, contrary to plants on shore, these trees formed became attached to rocks on the seafloor that I heading from top to bottom. Our lights produced a thousand of delight, a thousand delightful effects while playing over these brightly colored boughs. I fancied I saw these cylindrical membrane-filled tubes trembling beneath the water's undulations. I was tempted to gather their fresh petals, which were adorned with delicate tentacles, some newly in bloom, others bared open, while nibble fish were fl with fluttering fins brushed past them like flocks of birds. But if my hands came near the moving flowers of these sensitive, lively creatures, an alarm would instantly sound throughout the colony. The white petals retracted into the red sheets, the flowers vanished before my eyes, and the bush changed due to a chunk of stony nipples. <clears throat> Sheer chance had placed me in the presence of the most valuable specimens of the zoophyte. This coral was the equal of those fished up the Mediterranean off the Barbary coast or on the shores of France or Italy. With its bright colors, it lived up to those poetic names of blood flower or blood foam that the industry confers on its finest exhibits. Coral sells for as much as 500 francs per kilogram. And in this locality, this liquid, uh, the liquid strata hid enough to make a fortune of a whole host of coral fishermen. This valuable substance often merges with other polyparies, forming compact, hopelessly tangled units known as Macadia. Macchiodia. Sure. And out of some wonderful pink samples of this coral. But as the bushes shrank, the trees formed magnified. Actual petrified thickets and long alcoves from some fantastic school of architecture kept opening up before our steps. Uh, Captain Nemo entered beneath a dark galley, whose gentle slope took us to a depth of 100 meters. The light from our glass coils produced mag magical effects at times, lingering on the wrinkled roughness of some natural arch, where some overhang suspended like a chandelier, which our lamps flecked with fiery specks. Amid these shrubs of precious coral, I observed other polyps no less unusual. Melidia coral, rainbow coral with jointed outgrowths, then a few tufts of genus Coralinia, some green and others red, actually a tuff of seaweed encrusted with limestone salts, which, after long disputes, naturalists have finally placed in the vegetable kingdom. But as one intellectual had remarked, here, perhaps, is the actual point where life rises humbly out of slumbering stone, but without breaking away from its crude starting point. Finally, after two hours of walking, we reached a depth of about 300 meters, in other words, the lowest limit at which coral can begin to form. It was, it was here no longer some isolated bush or modest grove of low timber. It was an immense forest, huge mineral vegetation, enormous petrified trees linked by garlands of elect, elegant hydras from the genus Plumaria, those tropical creepers of the sea, all decked out in shades and gleams, who passed freely under its lofty boughs, up, on, um, lost up in the shadows of the waves, while at the feet, at our feet, organ pipe coral, stony coral, star coral, fungus coral, and sea anemone from the genus Caryophyllia formed a carpet of flowers, all strewn with dazzling gems. What an indescribable sight. Oh, if only we could share our feelings. Why we were imprisoned behind these masks of metal and glass. Why we were forbidden to talk with each other. At least let us lead the lives of fish and populate this liquid element. Or better yet, the lives of amphibians, which can spend long hours either at sea or on shore, traveling through their double domain as their whims dictate. Meanwhile, Captain Nemo called a halt. My companions and I stopped walking and turned around. I saw the crewmen form a semicircle around their leader. Looking with greater care, I observed that four of them were carrying on the shoulders an object that was oblong in shape. It's a fucking funeral, you dipshit. 
Uh, this locality was stood in the center of a huge clearing that's surrounded by tall trees forms this underwater forest. Our lamps cast a uh, sort of brilliant twilight over the area, making inordinately long shadows on the seafloor. Past the boundaries of the clearing, the darkness deepened again, relieved only by little sparkles giving off the sharp crests of the coral. Nedlin and Council stood next to me. We stared at an adonomy um, that I was about to witness a strange scene. Observing the seafloor, I saw that it swelled at certain points from low bulges that were encrusted with limestone deposits and arranged in a symmetry that betrayed the hand of man. In the middle of the clearing, on a pedestal of roughly piled rocks, there stood a cross of coral, extending long arms that you would have thought were made out of petrified blood. At a signal for Captain Nemo, one of his men stepped forward and a few free from his crotch, detached a mattock from his belt, and began to dig a hole. I finally understood. This clearing was a cemetery. This hole a grave, and the oblong object, the body of the man who must have died during the night. Captain Nemo and his men had come to bury their companion in this communal resting place on the inaccessible ocean floor. No. My mind was reeling as never before. Never had ideas of such impact raced through my brain. I didn't want to see what my eyes saw. Meanwhile, the grave digging went slowly. Fish fled here and there as their retreat was disturbed. I heard the picking ring on the limestone soil, its iron tip sometimes giving off sparks when it hit a stray piece of flint on the sea bottom. The hole grew longer, wider, and soon it was deep enough to receive the body. Then the pallbearers approached. Wrapped in white fabric made from filaments of fan muscles, the body was lowered into its watery grave. Captain Nemo, arms crossed over his chest, knelt in a posture of prayer, as did all the friends of him uh, who had loved them. My two companions and I bowed reverently. The grave was then covered over with uh, the rubble dug from the seafloor. It formed a low mound. When this was done, Captain Nemo's men stood up, and they all approached the grave, sank on bending knee again, and extending their hands in a sign of final farewell. Then the funeral party went back up the path to the Nautilus, returning beneath the arches of the forest through the thickets along the coral bush, going steadily higher. Finally, the ship's rays appeared. Their luminous trail guided us to the Nautilus. By one o'clock, we had returned. After changing clothes, I climbed onto the platform, and in a grip of dreadful, obsessive thoughts, I sat next to the beacon. Captain Nemo rejoined me. I stood up and said to him, So as I predicted, the man died during the night? Yes, Professor Arnox, Captain Nemo replied. Now he rests besides his companions in that coral cemetery. Yes, forgotten by the world, but not by us. We dig the graves, then entrust the polyps with sealing away our dead for eternity. And with a sudden gesture, the captain hid his face in his clenched fist, vainly trying to hold back a sob. Then he added, There lies our peaceful cemetery, hundreds of feet beneath the surface of the waves. At least, Captain, your dead can sleep serenely there, out of the reach of sharks. Yes, Captain Nemo replied solemnly, of sharks and men. End of first part. Fascinating. It's just... That's 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 the end of the first part. We did it. We were at the first half of fucking twenty thousand leagues into the sea. It's it's all right. <laughs> it's okay. Oh man, my voice is getting to me. Long ago, when the world was young, there was a television show that I absolutely loved, and it was called Once Upon a Time. It was on ABC, like a fucking decade ago um and it was this story of a bunch of like classic disney characters um forgetting who they are and being under a curse and then needing to be saved by the by someone named in this case um emma swan uh and i i recently rewatched season one and i remember when i was watching the show um like so I saw it when it aired and then I fell off the bandwagon and then I saw the whole thing again like two to three years ago and when I watched it then 
I remember thinking that season one was the best season because it had the most interesting dynamic of storyline in that um, you knew as the viewer who these people were. So when Snow White and Prince Charming were tantalizingly close to getting together only to like get ripped apart again because they didn't realize who they were to each other, but you knew that's really tragic storytelling and it was really compelling. And I felt that the following seasons didn't have a lot of merit. Um, I'm in the middle of season two right now, and I feel like season two has more than I originally realized it had. While season one is all about, you know, breaking the curse and helping people find who they are, season two is about the curse being broken and finding out who these people are to each other which is really, really fun. So we've got uh, a lot of relationships being developed over the course of season two, uh, like Emma having a relationship with her mom, Henry having a relationship with, with his grandfather, um, and all these new, intricate, interpersonal relationships that have come about because these these individuals are have essentially now lived two lives. The 28 years when they were in the curse and all that shit beforehand. So now there's like, oh shit, yeah. We were poker buddies in the curse, but before then we were mortal enemies. So how do we reconcile with these two halves of our personalities? It's it's interesting because it's like I'm not sure I would consider it a good show. I think it very much falls in that category of like guilty pleasure TV. It doesn't take a lot of energy to watch. It's super bingeable. Like I watched season one over the course of like four days. You know, just like absolutely blasted through it and it's it's not hard to watch and it's just compelling enough and it's just interesting enough and the performances are just good enough the music is just on point everything is just right for you to basically put down your remote when it like it starts and then all of a sudden your day's just gone because you've just been watching once upon a time just the whole day and it's actually, it's on Netflix right now until like sometime in September, at which point it's going to jump ship and join um, Disney Plus because it is a Disney show. Uh, and it's it's interesting to me how these fucking uh, licensing agreements keep going down. There's, there's a lot of like constant ongoing negotiations with stuff like this. The Muppets and the Muppets Most Wanted, the two most recent Muppet movies, are on their way back over to Netflix. They were they were on Disney Plus, but they're on their way back over to Netflix. And on one hand, I would argue that like I don't understand why Disney isn't just holding on to its intellectual properties. It's Disney's. But the reason is is money. So what what, you know, Disney will apparently in this agreement figured it would make more money outsourcing its movies to other services than it would keeping them on its own which is uh which is interesting and that's kind of why like that's how competition works like economically but i'm not gonna go into a whole big spiel but basically disney makes more money by selling its shit to other services um than it would if it kept it you know especially if disney does not see that as being like a draw to get people to subscribe to disney plus um, which, to be fair, Disney Plus needs something else to get people interested in the service. You know what I mean? Like, if, if, if you're like me, 
and you've had Disney Plus since it came out, you have probably worked through your worked through a vast majority of like the classic Disney content. You know, I'm I'm watching movies that I haven't seen since I was a wee baby, if ever. Like Melody Time. That movie's fucking weird. And it's because like Disney Plus doesn't have like enough new stuff on there to keep me like focused. So I've been diving into the backlog and pretty soon the backlog is gonna be drained. And Disney Plus needs new shit on there. And it needs to not charge us thirty dollars for the new Mulan movie, but that I digress. I've lost track. Once upon a time's pretty good. That's that was the crux of this of this segment. Was to talk about once upon a time. Alright, let's move on to the next thing in the podcast. Chapter 25, in the beginning of Part 2, The Indian Ocean. Now we begin the second part of this voyage under the seas. Ariel. <laughs> the first ended in the moving scene at the Coral Cemetery, which left a profound impression on my mind. And so, Captain... It didn't. It really didn't. Um, left an impression on Arnox's mind. And so Captain Nemo would live out his life entirely in the heart of this immense sea, and even his gra- uh, grave lay ready in its impenetrable depths. There, the last sleep of the Nautilus's occupants, friends bound together in death as in life, would be disturbed by no monster of the deep. No man either, the captain had added. Uh, no man either, the captain had added. Isn't there supposed to be like a cool squid fight in this fucking book? God, I hope that's soon. Always the same fierce, implacable defiance of human society. As for me, I was no longer content with the hypotheses that satisfied Council. That fine lad persisted in seeing the Nautilus's commander as merely one of those unappreciated scientists who repay humanity's indifference with contempt. For Council, the captain was still a misunderstood genius <laughs> who tried, who tired of the world's deceptions, had been driven to take refuge in this inaccessible environment where he was free to follow his instincts. But to my mind, this hypothesis explained only one sign of Captain Nemo. In fact, the mystery of that last afternoon where we were locked in prison put to sleep the captain's violent precautions of snatching from my grasp a spyglass poised to scour the horizon and the fatal wound given that man during some unexplained collision suffered by the Nautilus all led me down a plain trail. No! Captain Nemo was content, not, wasn't content to simply avoid humanity. His fearsome submersible served not only his quest for freedom, but also... Perhaps it was used in Lord knows what schemes for dreadful revenge. Right now, nothing was clear to me. I saw, I still uh, glimpse only glimmers in the darkness and must limit my pen, as it were, to taking diction from events. Oh, fucking Jesus Christ. I'm sleepy. It's like 11 in the morning. But nothing binds us to Captain Nemo. He believes that escaping from the Nautilus is impossible. We are not even constrained by our word of honor. No promise fetters us. We're simply captives, prisoners masquerading under the name of guests for the sake of everyday courtesy. Even so, Nedland hadn't given up all hope of recovering his freedom. He's sure to take advantage of the first chance that comes his way. No doubts I would do likewise. And yet I still feel some regret at making off with the Nautilus' secrets, so generously unveiled for us by Captain Nemo. But because, ultimately, because ultimately should we detest or admire this man, is that he, uh, is he the persecutor or the uh, persecutor or the persecuted? And in all honesty, before I leave him forever, I want to finish this underwater tour of the world whose first stages had been so magnificent. I want to observe the full series of these wonders gathered under the seas of our globe. I want to see what no man has seen yet, even if I must pay for this insatiable curiosity with my life. 
What are my discoveries to date? Nothing, relatively speaking, since so far we've only covered 6,000 leagues across the Pacific. Nevertheless, I am well aware that the Nautilus is drawing near to populated shores, and if some chance of salvation becomes available to us, it would be sheer cruelty to sacrifice my companions for my passion of the unknown. I must go with them, perhaps even guide them. But will this opportunity ever arise? The human being re robbed of his free will craves such an opportunity, but the scientist, forever inquisitive, dreads it. So I wanted I wanted to point something out that um uh the title of the book Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea is in reference to the number of leagues huh, that the Nautilus travels, not the depths to which it delves. I wanted to I wanted to point that out because um there is no depth in the ocean that is twenty thousand leagues. That would be impossible. So yeah, I was just. I thought it was interesting that it's actually uh, a descriptor of uh, how far they traverse uh, around the globe, not how deep they go. So, yeah. That day, January 21st, 1868, Chief Officer went out at noon to take the sun's altitude, climbed on the platform, lit a cigar, and watched him work. It seemed obvious to me that this man didn't understand French, but I made, because I made several remarks in a loud voice that were bound to provoke him to some involuntary show of interest had he understood them, but he remained mute and emotionless. While he took his sights with the sextant, one of the Nautilus sailors, that muscular man who had gone with us to Crespo Island during our first underwater excursion, came up to clean the glass panes of the beacon. I then examined the fittings of this mechanism, whose power was increased a hundredfold by biconvex lenses that were designed like those in a lighthouse and kept its rays productively focused. This electric lamp was so constructed as to yield its maximum illuminating power. In essence, the, its light was gen, uh, generated in a vacuum, ensuring both its steadiness and intensity. Such a vacuum also reduced wear on the graphite points between which the luminous arc expanded. This was an important savings for Captain Nemo, who could, couldn't easily renew them. But under these conditions, wear and terror were almost non-existent. When the Nautilus was ready to resume its underwater travels, I went below again to the lounge. The hatches were closed once more, and our course was set due west. We plowed the waves of the Indian Ocean, vast liquid plains with an area of 550 million hectares, whose water are so transparent it makes you dizzy to lean over their surface. There, the Nautilus generally drifted at a depth between 100 and 200 meters. It behaved in this way for some days. To anyone without my grand passion for the sea, these hours would have surely seemed long and monotonous, but my daily strolls on the platform, where I was revived by the life-giving ocean air, the sights of the rich water beyond the lounge windows, the books to read in the library, and the composition of my memoirs took up all my time and left me without a moment of weariness or boredom. All in all, we enjoyed a highly satisfactory state of health. The diet on board agreed with us perfectly, and for my part, I could easily have gone without those changes of pace that Ned Linden's spirit of protest kept taxing his ingenuity to supply us. What's more, in this constant temperature, we didn't even have to worry about catching colds. Besides, the ship had a good stock of madripoor dendrophilia, known in province by the name of sea fennel, and a poultice made from the dissolved flesh of its pulps will furnish an excellent coughing medicine. For some days, we were we saw a large number of aquatic birds with webbed feet known as gulls or seamews. Some were skillfully slain, and when cooked in a certain fashion, they make a very acceptable platter of water game. Among the great rider, great wind riders carried over long distances from every shore and resting on the waves from their exhausting flights, I spotted some magnificent albatross birds belonging to the long pins, long wind family, whose discordant calls sound like the braying of an ass. The toady palms, fully webbed family, was represented by swift frigate birds, namely catching fish as at the surface, and by numerous tropic birds of the genius Phaeton, among others, the red-tailed tropic bird the size of a pigeon, its white plumage shaded with pink tints 
that contrasted its dark-hued wings. The Nautilus and Nets hauled up several types of sea turtles from the hawkbill genius, with arching backs whose scales huh, are highly prized. Diving easily, these reptiles can remain in uh, a good uh, can remain a good while underwater by closing its fleshy valves located at the external openings of their nasal passages. When they were captured, some hawkbills were still asleep inside their carapaces, a refuge for other from other marine animals. The flesh of these turtles was nothing memorable, but their excellence made an excellent or their eggs made an excellent feast. Get it? Excellent. As for fish, they always filled us with wonderment when staring through the open panels we could unveil the seas of their aquatic lives. I noted several species I hadn't previously been able to observe. And are you gonna list them for me? Looks like you are. I'll mention chiefly some trunk fish unique to the Red Sea, the seas of the East Indies, and part of the ocean washing the coasts of equi um, equinoctial America. Like turtles, armadillos, sea urchins, and crustaceans, these fish are protected by armor plate that's neither chalky nor stone, but actual bone. Sometimes this armor takes the shape of a solid triangle, sometimes that of a solid quadrangle. Among the triangular type, I noticed some half a decimeter long with brown tails, yellow fins, and wholesome, exquisitely tasty flesh. I even recommend that they be acclimatized to fresh water, a change, incidentally, that a number of saltwater fish can make with ease. I'll also mention some quadrangular trunk fish topped by four large protuberances along the back. Trunk fish sprinkled with white spots on the underside of the body, which make uh, good house pets like certain birds. Boxfish armed with stings formed by extension of their bony crusts and whose odd grunting have earned them the nickname sea pigs. Then some trunk fish known as dromedaries with tough leathery fish and big conical humps. From daily notes kept by Mr. Council, I can also retrieve certain fish from the genius Tetradon unique to these seas, southern puffers with red backs and white chests distinguished by three lengthwise rows of filaments and jugfish several seven inches long, decked out in the brightest of colors. Then as specimens of other genera, blowfish resembling a dark brown egg furrowed with ripe bands and lichen tails, globefish, genuine porcupines of the sea armed with stings and able to inflate themselves under until they look like pincushions bristling with needles, seahorses common to every ocean, flying dragonfish with long snoots and highly distended pectoral fins shaped like wings, which enable them, if not to fly, at least to spring into the air, spatula-shaped paddlefish whose tails are covered with many scaly rings, and uh, snipefish with long jaws, an excellent animal 25 centimeters long and gleaming with the most cheerful colors, bluish-gray dragonet with wrinkled heads, myriads of leaping blennies with black stripes and long pectoral fins gliding over the surface of the water with prodigious speed, delicious sailfish that can hoist their fins in feral current like so many unfurled sails, splendid nursery fish on which nature has lavish yellow, azure, silver and gold, yellow mackerel with wings made of filament, bullheads forever splattered with mud, which makes distinct hissing sounds, sea robins whose livers are thought to be poisonous, ladies' fish that can flutter their eyelids, and finally archerfish with long tubular snouts, real ocean-going flycatchers armed with a rifle unforeseen by either Remington or Chase Pot. It slays insects by shooting them with a simple drop of water. <sighs> <sighs> From the 89th Fish Genius in La Laspedes systems of classification belonging to a second subclass of bunny fish characterized by gills and bronchial membrane, I noticed some scorpion fish whose heads adorned with stings which have only one dorsal fin. These animals are covered with small scales, or having none at all, depending on the subgenius to which they belong. The second subgenius gave us the didactylus specimens, three or four decimeters long, streaked with yellow, uh, their heads having a phantasmagoric appearance. As for the first, that's a fucking great word, phantasmagoric. As for the first subgenius, it's furnished several species of that bizarre fish aptly named toadfish, whose big head is sometimes gorged 
with deep cavities, sometimes swollen with protuberances, bristling with stings, and strewn with nodules. It sports hideously or hideously irregular horns. Its bone and tail adorned with um, callosities and stings can inflict dangerous injuries. It's repulsive and horrible. What? Right, whatever. From January 21st to the 23rd, the Nautilus traveled a range of 250 leagues in 24 hours, hence 540 miles at 22 miles per hour. If during our trip we were able to identify these different varieties of fish, it's because they were attracted uh, by our electric light and tried to follow it alongside. Most of them were outdistanced by the speed and soon fell behind temporarily, however, a few managed to keep pace with the Nautilus's waters. On the morning of the 24th, in latitude 12 degrees 5 inches or 5 feet south, and longitude 94 degrees 30 feet, 3 feet, we raised Kelling, or Keeling Island, a madreporic upheaving planted with magnificent coconut trees, which had been visited by Mr. Darwin and Captain Fitzroy. The Nautilus cruised along a short distance off the shore of this desert island. Our dragnet brought up many specimens of polyps and echinoderms, plus some unusual shells from the branch mollusca. Captain Nemo's treasures were soon enhanced by some valuable ex exhibits from the Delphinulia snail species. To which I joined some pointed star corals, some sort of parasitic polypary that often attaches itself to seashells. Soon, Keeling Island disappeared below the horizon, and our course was set to the northwest towards the tip of the Indian Peninsula. Civilization, Hedlund told me that day. Much better than those Papuan Islands where we ran into more savages than venison. On this Indian shore, Professor, there are roads and railways, English, French, and Hindu villages. We wouldn't go five miles without bumping into a fellow countryman. Come now, isn't it time for our sudden departure from Captain Nemo? No, no, Ned, I replied in a firm tone. Let's ride it out. As your seafaring fellows say, the Nautilus is approaching populated areas. It's going back towards Europe. Let it, let it take us there. After we arrive in home waters, we can do as we see fit. Besides, I don't imagine Captain Nemo will let us go hunting on the coasts of Malabar, Coromandel, as he did in the forests of New Guinea. Well, sir, can't we manage without his permission? I didn't answer the Canadian. I wanted no arguments. Deep down, I was determined to fully exploit the good fortune that had put me on board the Nautilus. After leaving Killing Island, our pace got uh, generally slower. It also got more unpredictable, slowly taking us to greater depths. Several times we used our slanting fins, which internal levers could set at an oblique angle to our waterline. Thus, we went as deep as two or three kilometers down, but without ever verifying the lowest depths of this sea near India, which soundings of 13,000 meters have been unable to reach. As for the temperature in these lower strata, the thermometer always and invariably indicated 4 degrees centigrade. I merely observed that in the upper layers, the water was always colder over shallows than in open sea. Oh, interesting. On January 25th, the ocean being completely deserted, the Nautilus spent the day on the surface turning the waves with its powerful propellers and making them spurt great heights. Under these conditions, it, who wouldn't have mistaken it for a giant whale? And, um, or I, spent three quarters of the day on the platform. I stared at the sea, nothing on the horizon except near 4 o'clock in the afternoon, a long steamer to the west running along our opposite tack. Its masting was visible for an instant, but it couldn't have seen the Nautilus because we were lying too low in the water. I imagine that steamboat belonged to the Pensilar or an Oriental Line, which provided uh, services from the island of Ceylon to Sydney, also calling at King George's Sound in Melbourne. At 5 o'clock in the afternoon, just before that brief twilight that links day and night with Tropical Zones Council, and I marveled at an unusual sight. It was a delightful animal, whose discovery, according to the ancients, is a sign of good luck. Aristotle, Athenius, Pliny, and Opian studied its habits and lavished on its behalf all scientific poetry of Greece and Italy. They call it Nautilus and Pompilius. By modern science, had not endorsed these designations, and this mollusk is now known by the name Argonaut. 
Anyone consulting counsel would soon learn from the gallant lad that the branch mollusca is divided into five classes. The first class is features cephalopodia, whose members are sometimes naked, sometimes covered with a shell, which consists of two families, the dibranchia and the tetrabranchiata, uh, which are, are distinguished by their number of gills, and the family dibranchiata includes three genera, the argonaut, the squid, and the cuttlefish. And that the family tetrabranchiata contains only one genius, the nautilus. After this catalog, uh, if some recalcitrant listener confuses the argonaut, which is acetabulfarius, in other words, a bearer of suction tubes, with a nautilus, which is tentaculfarius, a bearer of tentacles, it will be simply unforgivable. Now, in a school of argonauts, and then voyaging on the, uh, it was a school of argonauts, then voyaging on the surface of the ocean. Uh, we could count several hundred of them. They belonged to that species of argonaut covered with protuberances and exclusively to the seas near India. These graceful mollusks were swimming backwards by means of their locomotive tubes, sucking the water into these tubes and expelling it. Six of their eight tentacles were long and thin, floating on the water, while the other two were uh, rounded into palms and spread towards the wind like light sails. I could see perfectly un there I could see perfectly their undulating spiral-shaped shells, which uh, Couvert aptly compared to an elegant cockle boat. It's an actual boat indeed to transport the animal that secretes it without the animal sticking to it. Um, the Argonaut is free to leave its shell, I told Cancel, but it never does. Not unlike Captain Nemo, uh, Cancel replied sagely, uh, which is why he should have christened his ship the Argonaut. For about an hour, the Nautilus cruised in the midst of this school of mollusks. Then, Lord knows why, they were gripped with a sudden fear. As if a signal, every sail was abruptly lowered, arms folded, bodies contracted, and shells turned over by uh, changing their center of gravity, and the whole flotilla disappeared under the waves. It was instantaneous. No squadron of ship ever maneuvered with greater togetherness. Just then night fell suddenly and the waves bared surged in the breeze, spreading placidly around the Nautilus' side plates. The next day, January 26th, we cut the equator on the 82nd uh, meridian and we re-entered the northern hemisphere. During that day, a fearsome school of sharks proved us, uh, provided us with an escort. Dreadful animals that teem in these seeds and make them extremely dangerous. There were poor Jackson sharks with uh, a brown back, a whitish belly, and 11 rows of teeth. Big eyes sharks with necks marked by a black, large black spot encircled in white and resembling an eye. And Isabella sharks whose rounded snouts were strewn with dark speckles. Often these powerful animals rushed at the lounge windows with a violence less than comforting. By this point, Ned Lint had lost all self-control. He wanted to rise to the surface of the waves and harpoon the monsters, especially certain smooth hound sharks whose mouths were paved with teeth like a mosaic and some big five-meter tiger sharks that insisted on personally provoking him. But the Nautilus soon picked up speed and easily left astern the fastest of these man-eaters. On January 27th, at the entrance of the huge Bay of Bengal, we repeatedly encountered a gruesome sight. Human courses. Human courses? Corpses. Floating on the surface of the waves. Carried by the gang, um, the gangs to the high seas, they were deceased Indian villages who hadn't been fully devoured by vultures, the only morticians in these parts. But there were no shortages of sharks to assist him with their undertaking chores. <sighs> Near seven o'clock in the evening, the Nautilus lay half-submerged, navigating in the midst of milky white waves. As far as the eye could see, the ocean seemed less... Lactified, sure. Was it an effect of the moon's rays? No, because the new moon was barely two days old and was still lost below the horizon to the sun's rays. The entire sky, although lit up by stellar radiation, seemed pitch black in comparison to the whiteness of these waters. Council couldn't believe his eyes and questioned me about the cause of this odd phenomenon. Luckily, I was in a position to answer him. That's called a milk sea, I told him. Vast expanse of white waves often seen along the coasts of Ambonia in these waterways. But, Council asked, could Master tell me the cause of this effect? Because I presume this water hasn't changed into milk. 
No, my boy. And this whiteness that amazes you is merely due to the presence of myriads of tiny creatures called Infusoria. Sort of diminutive glowworm that's colorless and gelatinous in appearance, as thick as a strand of hair, and no longer than one-fifth of a millimeter. Some of these tiny creatures stick together over areas of several leagues. Several leagues! Council exclaimed. Yes, my boy. No one ever tried to commute the number of uh, these Infusia. You won't uh, be put off, because if I'm not mistaken, certain navigators have cruised through milk seas for more than 40 miles. I'm not sure that Council heeded my recommendation, because he seemed to be in deep thought, no doubt trying to calculate how many one-fifths of a millimeter are found in 40 square miles. As for me, I continue to observe this phenomenon. So for several hours, the Nautilus's spur sliced through these whitish waves, and I watched it glide noiselessly over the soapy water as if it were cruising through these foaming eddies that a, um, that a bay's currents and countercurrents sometimes leave between each other. Near midnight, the, ski, the sea suddenly resumed its usual hue, but behind us, all the way to the horizon, the sky kept mirroring the whiteness of these waves, and for a good while seemed imbued with a hazy glow of an aurora borealis. Aurora borealis! At this time of the day, in this part of the country, localized entirely within your living room. Yes. Can I see it? No. Oh, yeah. Milksy. It's a luminous phenomenon in the ocean in which large areas of seawater appear to glow brightly enough uh, at night to be seen by satellites opening, orbiting the Earth. Milky sea effects. Sorry, I was curious. I was like, I've never heard about this. So I looked it up. And it's real. Well, it wasn't that nice. That's special. And finally this week, I want to talk about a shot in the dark I took and how it kind of reaffirmed my my belief in what I like to do. So, long story short, a while back I paid for an ad for the podcast and it was less than uh, effective, I think is a kind way of saying it. And there was no noticeable jump in analytics or anything like that and it bummed me out because I had all these hopes and dreams kind of tied to the ads of the podcast and I realized afterwards when the ad did basically nothing um, that I had lost sight of why I do what I do. And I make stuff for the internet. I've been doing this for almost a decade. Um, pretty much ever since I started college. And I do content creation because it's my hobby. It's something I just really love to do in my spare time. And I had to remind myself that I'm not in this to become rich and famous because... I will be the first to tell you, if you decide to make things for the internet, becoming rich and famous is almost always not part of the deal. You will get, and what I like to do, like, you should make things that you're passionate about, that you believe in, that people can feel your enthusiasm for. Because if you are honest about what you enjoy and who you are, the right audience will find you. I firmly believe that, and that has been the case with everything I've ever made. I didn't have many people watch my videos. I don't have a lot of people listening to my podcasts, but the people who watched and the people who listened are people who enjoyed what I put out there and who liked me as, a, uh, as an entertainer. That matters so much more. Having one comment on a video, but having that one comment be positive, be like, great video, man, can't wait for the next one meant so much more than just thousands of people being like first 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 for first, first, first so that's that's why I, I do what I do now don't get me wrong I will absolutely be exploring other ways of advertising the podcast 
and getting more listeners into the fan base. But it, it, it is not the, the end goal to be like, you know, you know, oh man, I have like a house in LA that's made out of solid glass. No, no. Um, especially because it's pretty unlikely. Uh, it happens to a few and those few are very fortunate, but I hope they're smart financially because eventually, eventually it's all going to crash and burn. And if they didn't have a hell of a lot of money in their savings account, that's going to be problematic. Anyway, I just wanted to talk a little bit about that um, and, and keep my eyes peeled. And now, in direct antithesis of what I said about how this isn't about money, if you like this podcast, feel free to swing over to Patreon and support the Going Upcast. Um, it'd, be a, it'd, be, it'd be a very nice gesture. It is not necessary at all. Oh, you know, it's out there, so you know you can do you can do what you want to do. I'm not gonna tell you what to do. I'm gonna move on to the next thing. Po- Actually, I think this is the end of the podcast. Never mind. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Going Upcast. I hope you all enjoyed it immensely. Uh, I very much enjoy putting these together for you, as I have just stated in this kind of long spiel. Um, it's it's just an absolute joy, and you'll hear my dulcet tones with more Brissinger chapters throughout this week. Uh, we're making swift progress through 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. I think we're about halfway done with that book. It's significantly longer than I thought it was going to be, but hey, you know what? That's just sometimes how it goes. Um, and I hope you're all doing well and staying safe. And I will see you all next week. Have a good one, everyone.